Hi, welcome back to season two of Anything We Want podcast. This is episode six, and I have Adrian as a guest today to talk about the ocean metals that they study. The title of this episode is a little bit mysterious on purpose. I feel like sometimes you have to lure people in to listen to sciencey things because we're so used to them not being accessible. This one is. This episode is accessible, I promise. Goldilocks is a type, or more like it's a name given to some metals, which Adrian will explain. And the cruise part is because I would say the ha- the second half of this episode is about a research cruise that they went on. And if you're a bit scared of the sciencey part, get through it to get to the, the cruise part, because at least that's always fun to listen to, right? How people do their jobs and how it works. And that sounds like a really exciting experience to go on. So if you're a little scared of the sciencey explanations, um, I hope the promise of a fun chat about a cruise keeps you around because I am scared sometimes of sciencey topics, but I love them. I believe if I had less fear in me, I would have attempted to pursue scientific studies. I'm happy I didn't. I was very happy in social science, but it is fascinating to me, and I'm so glad that I am having a guest who is knowledgeable on a scientific topic and something that I know nothing about for my last guest episode of the season. I will talk about that at the end. For now, I will let Adrian introduce themselves and the topic and get on with the episode. One last thing before we start, I would like to welcome the cats to the episode. My cat Jeff was opening doors and bothering me. Luckily, my microphone was muted when he was doing that, so you can't hear him. However, you might hear some noises in the background of Adrian speaking. That is their cat, Brooke, being a cat and making noise. So welcome to Jeff and Brooke, who wanted to be in the podcast show. Have fun listening. Hi, so my name is Adrian, um, and I study trace metals in the ocean with a focus on the Amazon estuary. So just a bit of background. I'm originally from Washington State in the US, so the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I grew up around the Puget Sound, um, which is, I guess, my first experience of an estuary and 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 how I developed a, a love for all things related to the outdoors and the ocean um, in childhood. Uh, then I got my uh, bachelor's degree in chemistry and then moved to Florida to get my master's degree um, at USF in oceanography with a focus on chemical oceanography and specifically trace metals in the ocean. Um, and then later moved to uh, Germany, actually, um, Northern Germany, and um, am currently attending Jakobs University and am working on my PhD, um, also in geochemistry, um, oceanography with a focus on trace metals in the ocean. So I study trace metals uh, as, as I mentioned before, I study trace metals in the ocean and Amazon estuary. And these metals are manganese, iron, cobalt, nickel, copper, zinc, cadmium, and lead. I also study metal binding lichens, um, which are molecules that bind to these metals and influence their bioavailability and reactivity. And I'll talk more about these later. Why are trace metals important? Well, uh, they are, on one hand, they are necessary for marine life. Uh, they serve as micronutrients, so they're only needed in small amounts 
um, but they're essential for certain enzymes to function, um, for example. And it's the same for humans. For example, think about iron in hemoglobin. Iron is actually one of the most important trace metals in the ocean. And in the past, uh, iron has actually been important, uh, has been hypothesized to uh, be the cause of um, governing some of the Earth's climate cycles, for example, causing an ice age. Um, and the reason for this is that iron is very, can be a limiting nutrient for phytoplankton. Um, and of course, phytoplankton are, are similar to plants. They produce um, oxygen and use up carbon dioxide. Um, and so uh, today, in up to 40% of the global surface ocean, iron is a limiting nutrient, um, which means that it's, it's the nutrient that's limiting the growth of these phytoplankton. And if you were to add a bunch of iron, it could potentially cause a phytoplankton bloom. So iron is very important as a, as a micronutrient. However, some trace metals can also be toxins, for example, copper, cadmium, and zinc, and uh, lead, which is a, um, an environmental contaminant, an anthropogenic contaminant, and can be used as an anthropogenic tracer. And then other metals, such as copper, are considered quote unquote Goldilocks type elements, like the story Goldilocks and, th and the Three Bears, where um, she wanted not too much, not too little, but just right in the middle. Um, and, and it's that way with copper. It, um, it's necessary for certain enzymes to function um, in phytoplankton. However, if you have too much of it, it can be toxic. And again, it's the same uh, with humans. Um, so you, you, need, you need the right balance of these trace metals. Um, so how do we study trace metals in the ocean? Well, one way is to go on a research cruise at sea and collect water samples to measure the concentrations of these trace metals. And in doing this, we can look at the different size fractions that these metals are partitioned into. For example, the really small soluble size fraction, the larger colloidal size fraction, and the particulate fraction that is not dissolved. Um, and this is done by filtering them through different uh, through filters of different pore sizes. And some metals can absorb to the walls of particles, for example, and those don't go through the filters, whereas other ones um, are filtered all the way through the smallest, uh, the smallest pore size. We can also look at the interactions of these metals with organic matter, um, as I mentioned before. And these metal binding organic or carbon-based molecules are called ligands. And these have a number of different sources. They may be produced by terrestrial plants or phytoplankton. Um, and they also have a large variety and diversity of function. Um, some are produced just accidentally as natural byproducts um, of metabolism, for example, while others are made intentionally by phytoplankton. Um, and the purpose it can be either to make biolimiting metals uh, such as iron more bioavailable um, and the ligands produced for this purpose uh, specifically to make iron more bioavailable are called siderophores. However, they can also have the opposite effect by, um, for other elements 
um, in order to decrease the toxicity of these elements and make them less bioavailable. Um, and an example of this is uh, when phytoplankton or plants produce phytochelatins. And these actually um, work to decrease the toxicity of, of some, some metals like copper, for example, or cadmium or zinc or, or others that can be potentially toxic. Um, so that's why ligands uh, or organic ligands specifically are important. And I'll, I'll talk more about those later in the Amazon, but it's, it's one of the focuses of my work as well um, because they really influence the behavior of trace metals. Trace metal sampling uh, can be a challenge, however, because we're studying metals in such small concentrations. And so they're very, the samples are very easily contaminated. Uh, for example, sunscreen has zinc in it. So if you're wearing sunscreen and you touch a sample with your hands, um, that, that will contaminate it. Um, dust has iron and lead in it. So if you get a little dust particle in your sample, again, you'll contaminate it. Or if there's something rusty in the lab, or if your container that you're using to sample is metal. Um, the, the, these are all sources of contamination. There are a lot of sources of sources of contamination. And so we have a lot of special trace metal clean protocols that we use and a special hood with positive pressure that we use to keep out dust and, and special cleaning protocols for the bottles um, to make sure that there's no contamination. So what are the sources and sinks of trace metals in the ocean? Well, there are a lot of them. Um, they can come from hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean, for example. Uh, they can be deposited on the surface of the ocean from atmospheric dust. Uh, for example, the Sahara Desert. Um, dust storms in the Sahara Desert are a major source of iron to the Atlantic Ocean. And dust can also be a source of things like lead. And trace metals can also be deposited from the continental shelf. Um, Concentrations of metals within the ocean can also be controlled by biological processes, such as uptake of these metals by phytoplankton and then uh, regeneration or remineralization. When the phytoplankton die, they release these metals again back into the ocean at different depths. Um, and this was actually a focus of my master's work was uh, phytoplankton remineralization as they decay. And finally, rivers are a major source of trace metals. And this is the focus of my PhD, specifically on the Amazon. So the Amazon uh, is by far the largest river on earth. It makes up roughly 15 to 20% of the global freshwater discharge. Um, and the average flow of the Amazon is 150,000 cubic meters per second, which is, is a very large number, but maybe doesn't mean that much. However, the second largest river, the Congo, um, discharges only roughly 40,000 uh, cubic meters per second. Um, and so the difference between these two, uh, the, and the Congo is the second largest river, so the difference between the first largest, the Amazon, and the second largest, the Congo, is many times greater. Um, and uh, during the wet season, it can actually get a lot higher too. I went there during a period of high discharge in April and May, and at this point, it was roughly 250,000 cubic meters per second. 
In addition to the Amazon, there's also the Pará River, which is often overlooked, but it's actually the world's fifth largest river, and it's to the southeast of the um, Amazon and also influences the estuary. Uh, the Amazon River is still a relatively pristine environment, however, increasing anthropogenic impact from agriculture, mining, deforestation, forest fires, etc. are causing obviously a lot of um, impact and increasing amount of impact on it. Um, and this is really tragic, not just because the Amazon rainforest and river are important in their own right as a big source of biodiversity and, and um, pristine rainforest, but also because it's important for the entire world and the Amazon rainforest actually influences climate on a global scale. Um, so it's really important to keep it safe. Um, and it's, it's as such is really important to study the Amazon rainforest and river and estuary region. Um, in order to monitor it and to mitigate future, future changes. However, prior to this work that my colleagues and I did, very little was known about trace metals in the Amazon estuary. Um, and the only other data on these transition metals that I study in the Amazon estuary was actually from the 1970s. Um, and a lot has changed since then. So it was really important to study the metals in this region. So my PhD work has been focused on studying the um, transition metals or trace metals, manganese, iron, cobalt, nickel, copper, zinc, cadmium, and lead, um, and organic matter that binds to these metals in the Amazon and Pará River estuary. I'll just briefly outline some of the results that I found during my PhD. Um, as mentioned, the research cruise was conducted in the wet season, um, although we're hoping in the future to do another one in the dry season so that we get a year round picture. Um, and there were samples collected uh, of different trace metals over the full salinity range. So all the way from zero salinity um, in the freshwater end member to full ocean salinity of around 35 uh, PSU in the um, ocean. And uh, there were also some samples taken at depth to see how the concentration of these metals changes as you go deeper into the water column. Um, and as we expected, the, there was quite different behavior for the different types of trace metals. This is typical um, for other estuaries as well. For example, iron and lead are commonly scavenged to particles. They're very particle reactive. And so what we saw is that at low salinity, at low salinity the concentration of these metals started out quite high in the river and then decreased very quickly at low salinity and then stayed relatively low as the river water mixed with the ocean water. Um, however, for metals like cadmium, there was actually an increase at mid salinity. So uh, for the river water, they started out, yeah, somewhat lower and then increased as the river water mixed with the ocean water and then decreased again. And the reason for this is actually that um, cadmium commonly, uh, this, this is a phenomenon commonly seen in estuaries. And the reason is that cadmium can be adsorbed to particles at uh, lower salinity, but then 
as it interacts with the uh, chlorine in the seawater, um, it can desorb from these particles. Um, and that causes an increase in cadmium that we saw. Um, and then other metals like copper are actually more conservative. This means that um, there's a more linear mixing or there's a more linear, if you were to plot the concentration on the y-axis versus salinity on the x-axis, you would see a more linear straight line. And that means that they're controlled mainly just by the mixing of the two water int members. Um, and copper is actually one of the main focuses of my work um, because it's, it's very strongly uh, complexed by organic ligands. Um, more than 99% of copper is bound up to these ligands and they can be produced um, as mentioned before, either by terrestrial plants, such as uh, humic substances are what uh, the types of ligands produced by terrestrial plants commonly are. Um, as well as in the ocean by phytoplankton. Um, although I don't know for sure what the sources, what all the sources of these ligands are, and there's quite a large variety of them. But anyway, what I found is that they were present in excess of copper as expected, and they prevented copper from ever reaching toxic levels. Although without these like organic ligands, the copper ions unbound to any organic matter would have been toxic. So, um, and this, this is commonly observed in the ocean that these ligands can mitigate the toxicity of copper. And surprisingly, the copper concentrations that I found were quite similar, uh, basically identical to the concentrations that were previously found in a study conducted in the 1970s. Um, so this was a bit surprising considering the amount of anthropogenic impact that has occurred in the Amazon River and estuary. However, it means that at least in terms of copper, the Amazon is still a relatively pristine environment. So, so that's a good thing. I'm currently working on publishing a paper with um, the full range of trace metals as well and, and where I will report all of their fluxes. Um, so that's just a very brief summary of, of some of the things that we discovered about the Amazon estuary. The samples that I analyzed for my PhD um, are, were actually collected on a cruise in 2018 before I started my PhD. So I analyzed them in the lab and wrote up papers on them, but I didn't actually collect the samples myself. However, um, last year in the spring of 2021, I had the opportunity to go on a cruise as well. Um, to the Amazon estuary. Um, and so that was really cool. And I, I collected samples that I have begun to analyze and, and some students, some bachelor students that, I, that I'm supervising are also assisting in the analysis of those. Um, so do you want me to talk a little bit about that cruise? Yeah, I would like to hear about the cruise and what it's like and what, for people who don't do that kind of science and research, what we can wonder like, what do they possibly do? Because it's so complex. So like, what do you do on, on the cruise to? Yes, this is my favorite part of the work, even though most of the time um, during my PhD, I spend either in the lab or writing up papers, but doing the research cruise is definitely the most fun part. Um, so I went in the spring of 2021 during 
the COVID pandemic, obviously. Um, and so there was this whole system uh, in place for quarantining beforehand um, and, and not being exposed to anyone and being tested before we actually boarded this ship because obviously we didn't want a, a um, breakout of, of COVID amongst the, the researchers on board while we were at sea. Um, so we spent actually 10 days quarantining in a hotel in Northern Germany and we got, we were tested several times for uh, Corona during that time and got our, all our food delivered to us um, and had meetings online and, and um, played, played uh, on online games with each other over Zoom in our spare time or, or, or worked on stuff on our computer. Um, and then after that was done, we all went on a special charter flight um, again, so that we aren't exposed to anyone, we went on a charter flight to the Canary Islands, um, which is where our ship departed from. The reason we quarantined in northern Germany rather than in the Canary Islands is just because that is where the shipping company is based and that's where their quarantine system was set up. So it was a little bit overly complicated, but it worked. Um, so we departed from Las Palmas in the Canary Islands, as I said. Uh, we couldn't walk around and explore because, again, that would mean being exposed to corona and undoing all our quarantine. Um, but it was, uh, it was still very beautiful to look at. Um, anyway, 10 days after the start, we departed uh, from the Canary Islands and headed all the way to the Amazon estuary. And that took another roughly 10 days um, of ship time. Normally we would have just flown um, from Germany to uh, Brazil and departed from there. Because of COVID, it made things extra complicated. Uh, but the, the, the transit time was actually very nice and relaxing because we didn't really have a lot of work to do while we were in, in transit. Um, so it was just a lot of, of looking at, at the beautiful ocean and taking some samples along the way but pretty relaxing um and 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 doing work on our computers and stuff um and then we finally arrived and when we arrived then it was a fairly intense sampling period of, of several weeks um and again this was during the high discharge season so it was quite rainy um and and we did a lot of sampling in the amazon and para estuaries um, my, uh, I was there with another trace metal colleague from my university. Um, and so the two of us did um, all the trace metal sampling and we used these things called GoFlow bottles, which are um, specially designed trace metal clean bottles. We had a special acid cleaning procedure beforehand to make sure they were trace metal clean. And then um, we, uh, sent them down on a Kevlar wire. We attached them to a Kevlar wire, which was lowered into the ocean um, using a winch on the ship. Um, and then we threw, in order to close the bottle, we would throw a metal weight down, uh, which traveled along the wire and then triggle, triggered a special mechanical response that caused the bottle to close. Um, but the bottle itself was um, completely uh, metal free. The water never came in contact with any metal. Um, then we would bring the bottle back to our special trace metal lab with a 
um, a trace metal clean hood under positive pressure to prevent any contamination and, and then filter the samples. Um, we also did a couple other, in addition to collecting just samples along the estuary, we also did a couple other experiments like one was a mixing experiment using um, seawater and, and uh, river end members to look at the, the processes of mixing specifically. Um, using filtered and unfiltered river water. Um, and I did a couple incubation experiments to see the effects of phytoplankton growth on trace metal production. Um, so that, that was the, the trace metal sampling that we did. Um, and then afterwards we had a uh, roughly two week transit back to Northern Germany, actually. Um, we, didn't, we didn't stop by the Canary Islands on the way back, we just went directly back to Inden in Northern Germany. And that took about two weeks. Um, and during this time we wrote the cruise report, um, we worked on our computers and we also just relaxed. Um, and we, because it was such a long research cruise, we actually had a refueling stop in the Azores Islands, um, which is an archipelago um, that's a part of Portugal. and. It was so beautiful um, with beautiful green sea cliffs. And, and, and uh, unfortunately though, we couldn't get out and walk around again because of Corona. So we just, uh, we just re refueled and, and got more, more food and stuff um, delivered to the ship and then uh, went back to Germany. And yeah, so that, that was definitely the, it's not the only research cruise I've been on but it definitely was the longest one. Um, and so that was a really cool experience. Editing me interrupting to add some context because I lost some audio. My next question to Adrian was about the anthropogenic contaminants. Anthropogenic means things that come from human activity. For example, I think the way I had worded it at first was I was wondering if things we do like bathing with sunscreen or pouring things in the water can change the trace metals in the ocean and then lead to bigger things like blooms of algae or climate change in the long run. So that was the idea of my question, but it made no sense. And when I tried to edit it, I lost it. So this is context. This was a question about the human activity and or anthropogenic contaminants to the ocean. The major anthropogenic contaminant for trace metals, at least out of the ones that I study, would be lead. Um, because as I, I said that most of the trace metals that I study have a biological function, but lead actually has no known biological function and it is purely um, an anthropogenic contaminant. And um, one of the major sources in the past was actually from leaded gasoline, but since uh, that was phased out, we actually saw a dramatic decrease in, in lead in the ocean, um, or at least in surface waters. So that is um, one, one metal that we really can see tangible effects from anthropogenic impact. Yeah, another question I had about making it tangible to the more general public who doesn't like do science is how trace metals levels affect us every day. You mentioned climate changes. So like if we see climate changes, if you go to the beach and you see like a lot more seaweed or weird things on the sand that you don't usually see, is that things that are affected by the levels in the in the water? 
so it depends on the metal. Um, for some, for a lot of the metals, to be honest, I don't know directly how they impact, um, for example, harmful algal blooms. Um, however, for something like iron, it is definitely growth limiting in large parts of the ocean. So if you have a large deposit of iron, um, for example, from a dust storm in the Sahara, it can cause a large phytoplankton bloom. Um, and, and it's actually, there's this debate going on in the Gulf of Mexico and in uh, the area around Florida where I did my master's degree, whether um, uh, iron from, uh, from storms, from dust storms, for example, is the cause of certain harmful algal blooms that occur in that area, or if it's caused by something else like runoff from fertilizer. Um, which, which is a source of phosphates, for example. Um, and we don't really know, and that's actually hotly debated um, in, in certain parts of Florida, but um, it, iron, yeah, is, is a big limiting nutrient. So if you were to dump, load, dump a truckload of iron into the middle of the ocean in an iron limiting area, it would definitely create a massive phytoplankton bloom. When you write a report on your findings, who reads it? If there's something alarming, who's going to do something about it? If you find out something that is a proof that you need something to be done on any level, if it's like the law to be passed to limit, I don't know, dumping things in the water that would change the levels, like who reads it and can do something if there is something that needs to be done? Mm, that's that's a really good question. Um, so when I publish, uh, I, I would publish in a um, in an academic journal like uh, Luminology and Oceanography or Marine Chemistry. Uh, those are two major ones, and um, it would be mostly other scientists that are reading that. Um, although although the public can have access to them as well, I, I guess it would be. Um, journalists that report on it but I don't yeah I don't actually know how how it would get from the scientific publication to laws being passed and the important people getting a hold of this information um that's actually a really good question and I I don't know so much about that end of the process but I probably should um but yeah that's that's why science journalists are important and and scientists in government and in po public policy are important I'm not involved in that aspect of things um but but those people are definitely a very important I want to thank Adrian so much for taking the time to be on the podcast, not only because I'm always grateful to have guests give their time and knowledge and experience, but also because we had to record twice. My audio from our first recording got corrupted and I couldn't fix it and they were kind enough to record again. And I'm really glad that I didn't lose this episode entirely. This didn't make it into this episode, but the first time we recorded, I asked Adrian to share a charity, a program, an organization, a website, anything that they wanted to promote. And Zoom cut us off the second time around before we could get to that and I totally forgot to ask beforehand so I will introduce it but um, they shared it with me and this is what it is about. Wild Green Future is a charity organization that uses community fundraising to support efforts of conservation worldwide. 
You can donate year-round to this organization, but they are linked with the Wild Green Memes for Ecological Fiends group that you can find on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. And so a fun event that they have is every December, they have a specific fundraising event. It's a charity battle. So you can vote with your favorite nature-related gang. Adrian told me there's, for example, the bird gang, the herp gang, the deep-sea weirdos, or the trash mob with raccoons and possums. So it's a competition where you vote with money for your favorite group, and in return you get a sticker of the gang you voted for, and that money goes to the efforts of the group that they work on all year round, but that's the specific December event, and that sounds really fun. I will have the link of Well Green Future organization in the description of the episode, and I hope you check it out and participate next December. Thanks, Adrian, for sharing this with us. As I have, I believe, mentioned in the introduction to this episode, this is the last episode with a guest this season. I'm closing the season after only a few episodes once again. Because I put them out every two weeks, it feels like it goes on forever, but there's only going to be seven total in this in this season. And the last episode, I'm usually not revealing topics early because I like to make it a little bit of a game, but mostly will be about where this is ending, maybe recap why it started, how the experience of podcasting has been for me. I'm aware my main audience has remained the podcast friends I made on Instagram. So maybe this will be the most on-topic episode ever because I'm just going to talk to podcasting about potential podcasters, which I don't consider myself to be. And also we'll explain that. Um, Just being transparent now, that means I'm probably not going to keep doing this super long. And ending this season is more than a break because I think I'm not going to have even time to keep doing this for a while and the next time I do have time and space for it I don't know if I will want to do it in the same way I have been so I'm trying to reflect on the future of this small project that the podcast has been so that I can record an episode that makes sense about it I kind of want to close it off with it being a conclusion for myself as well and we'll see how it goes from there so see you in two weeks for that I guess uh for the finale of the season and of the podcast for a while because I don't know if this will come back in this format. I know I enjoy recording and I know I enjoy connecting but I'm not sure I enjoy the rest that comes with podcasting and that's just a little insight in what's gonna be in the next and last episode of the season. Thank you for listening. Once again, thank you to my guest, Adrian, for being on this episode. I ramble on a little bit more uh, this time than I usually do. So I will go now and I will see you over on Instagram and TikTok a little bit until the next episode that will be coming out in two weeks. And until then, I hope you have a great time. Bye. Mm-hmm.